Albert Einstein said coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. In other words, God's hand is in everything. We're just not aware of it. Believing that the Father is in control is an important aspect of faith, I think. In the book of Genesis, we're told the account of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac without even doubting the Lord's reasons. In Genesis 22, we read, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, Be myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So blessings come from obedience, and blessings come from not attributing things to coincidence. Blessings come from just doing what the Lord wants you to do. A couple of years ago, I was asked to testify before a panel of Library of Congress appointed judges regarding royalty decision proceedings on behalf of internet radio aggregators, one specifically located in California, as well as on behalf of internet radio station owners across the United States. And it was springtime, 
And in Colorado, the weather can be either sunny and mild or an absolute raging blizzard. I live in an alpine valley surrounded by 14,000-foot mountain peaks. And the passes over the mountains can be really dangerous to traverse in snowy conditions. Well, as it turned out, I didn't get the sunny, mild card. (laughs) It was snowy and cold, and I was scheduled to fly out of Denver, headed to Washington. I got about two hours up the road over a high mountain pass, just to find out on the other side that conditions were even worse between there and Denver. I decided to turn back at that point. Though, and that was a tough decision because it would mean missing the opportunity to testify in Washington to help other internet broadcasters. Uh, by the time I got back on the pass, the roads were a lot worse and my truck began sliding sideways in an area with, with a 100 foot or more steep drop down into a pine tree filled canyon. Um, I managed to turn the wheel and stop this kid, but it was rather harrowing there for a minute or two. Well, when I got home, I called the company and told them about the weather and about almost sliding down a mountain, and they suggested I'd take a small plane directly from the valley and connect in Denver. I knew then I wasn't going to get out of it, and I had to do it, so I prepared to leave again the next day. I flew out on a small plane with only one seat on each side of the aisle. The stewardess stood and gave the directions like stewardesses do at the beginning of a flight, and then she proceeded to sit in the co-pilot's seat. (laughs) She was also the co-pilot, and there was no door on the cockpit. It was all open. It was a daytime flight, and as we flew over the high mountains, I thought about how we were actually in the heavens. And any fear I had dissolved as I thought of angels flying right beside us, watching over us. When I reached Washington, flying into Dulles, I stepped outside the airport to catch a cab to the hotel. A man directed me to the first cab in a long line of taxi cabs, and I got in with my little, small little bag. I had everything in a small uh makeup case kind of bag, including what I call my indestructible dress, which didn't have a single wrinkle when I hung it up that night after it was scrunched up in that little bag. Amazing. Anyway, the company I was to testify for was going to pay my fare at the hotel, and the cab driver with a foreign accent didn't understand that, and uh, he began speaking hatefully and argumentative. I couldn't tell him whether they were going to pay with a credit card or cash and 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 so he he got all hateful and everything uh, i guess he thought he wasn't going to get paid at our destination i i guess i'm not sure to this day what his problem was but it was not a happy situation and something just at, at that point something just came over me and i was feeling directed to leave there get out of this cab now kind of thing I had a feeling I wasn't supposed to ride in that cab. I told him thank you and I tried to be polite and courteous and uh but that I was going to take another cab and I tried to be kind about it as I left. Well, I got in the cab behind that one and we began our journey in heavy traffic. The cab driver began to ask me questions as to why I was in Washington. 
and I told him about the lawsuit and about Solace Radio. And then he began to tell me about his family and how he was from Afghanistan. And he had had a dream of being a writer. We talked about God. He told me of some problems in his life, and I tried to give him ideas of how God can change things and make them better. And it was kind of a long ride from the airport. Dulles is kind of way out there from wherever my hotel was. And we talked quite a bit, and I told him I'd pray for him and his family and for him to get a new job that he liked. We arrived at the hotel, and my colleagues weren't there yet that were supposed to meet me and pay the cab driver. So he said he'd wait outside the cab with me there on the curb. They arrived shortly thereafter, and he told me in front of all these lawyers and and company people in suits, he said, you pray for me because I have a feeling that God answers your prayers. And he smiled. It probably shocked all those guys standing there in the and uh, he gave me a hug and he seemed really happy as he pulled away from the curb he looked back he was smiling but he had a really sad look in his eyes kind of like he didn't want to leave and I knew then the real reason I had to fly over those mountains so I could talk to a cab driver from Afghanistan about how God answers prayer and is always there with us Sometimes when we really don't want to do something, perhaps we should consider that the Father has plans to use us in a special situation. He puts people together for his own purposes. And I know now I was supposed to be in that second taxi cab. There are no happenstance coincidences. I I don't believe in coincidences. The Lord was moving in that situation, I think. I told just about everyone I met at the hotel and in planes about Solace Radio. I knew if they listened, they would learn. On the last leg back, flying once again in a tiny little plane, (laughs) this time at night, over steep snow-covered peaks, and it was horribly windy, horrible. And I will tell you, I am afraid of wind shears when flying, because they can take down even big aircraft. Well, all of a sudden, the the alarms in the plane started going off, and it was bumpy. It started to be a bumpy ride, and being the plane was being blown about by the upper atmospheric winds. But even through that, and hearing all the alarms, uh, and they just kept coming on, I knew that God was in control, and He had a purpose for my life. I knew that many planes have crashed into those mountains and many had died on the snowy slopes, but I had a feeling God was not through with me yet. And of course there were those angels right outside the plane. I couldn't see them, but I knew somehow they were there. He's always watching over us no matter where we are, nor what circumstances, such as our great glorious and all-knowing father he can take he can take bad things and turn them into good he has a plan for our lives and all we have to do is follow it and we'll be all right and he does answer prayers most of the time he gives us more than we even asked for he gives us exactly what we need
talk radio for inquisitive people. Solace Radio, Bonavista, Colorado. And most people know Balaam because of his donkey. That's why we have the donkey here. And uh, although he looks like a mule. Uh, you guys know the difference between a mule and a donkey? Uh, a a, a a mule is, is a bread between a horse and a donkey, and mules are sterile. And a donkey is actually its own little species, and uh, not sterile. <laughs> and the reason why they bred the mule is because they're stronger, and uh, they're a little less stubborn than the donkey. And so they're a little more horse-like, and yet they're, they're enough donkey-like. I don't know, I'm not, a, I'm not into animal husbandry, I'm just saying there's a difference, and and that looks, that looks like a mule, but nevertheless, I grew up in Arkansas. I don't know why I know these things. We know Balaam because we know of the story of Balaam's donkey and a talking donkey. I mean, that's amazing, right? I, I heard Greg Laurie tell a story just last week about a man who was walking through the woods. He was an older gentleman, and uh, he, hears a, he hears a voice that says, hey, pick me up. And he looks around. He's in the woods. There's nobody around. Like, huh getting old and he says uh he's just walking a little bit more a couple of steps he hears the voice say hey buddy pick me up he looks around i can't find hey buddy pick me up he looks down and there's a frog and he he picks him up and he says what what do you want from me he says hey buddy if you'll kiss me i'll turn into a beautiful princess and at your age that could be very valuable and the old man put the frog in his pocket and he continued walking and the guy goes, the, the frog says, did you not hear me? I said that if you kiss me, I'll turn into a beautiful princess. He said, at my age, I'd rather have a talking frog. <laughs> Balaam had a talking donkey. And that's how most people remember him. But did you know that Balaam is mentioned more than any other Old Testament character? In the Brit Hadashah. Throughout the Bible, he's mentioned more than any other character. And you think, that's odd. This should be, you know, some of the great heroes. Maybe David should be mentioned more. Or maybe Solomon should be mentioned more. Or Samson. Or, or, you know, other figures. Maybe Saul should be mentioned more. But no, Balaam is mentioned more than anybody else in all kinds of different contexts. In Deuteronomy 23, 3-6, he says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the Lord's assembly, none of their descendants, even to the 10th generation may enter into the Lord's assembly. And this is because they did not meet you with food or water on the journey after you came out of Egypt. And because Balaam, son of Beor from Pethor and Aram, uh, Nahariim, has hired, uh, was hired to curse you. Yet the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but he turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Joshua 24, 9 through 10 says, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent out to fight against Israel. He sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Nehemiah 13, 1 through 3, at the time of the book of Moses was read publicly to all the people. The command was found written in it that no 
Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the Israelites with food and water. Instead, they hired Balaam against them to curse them. But our God turned the curse into a blessing. Micah 6, 5. My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, proposed and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him and what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. Second Peter and the Brit Hadashah 2, 15 and 16. They have gone astray by abandoning the straight path and have followed the path of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness but received a rebuke for his transgression. A donkey that could not talk spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's irrationality. Jude, well, there's only one Jude, but Jude 1, verse 11. Woe to them, for they have traveled in the way of Cain and have abandoned themselves in the error of Balaam for profit and have perished in Korah's rebellion. Revelation 2, 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in the front of, uh, of front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. You see, the story of Balaam is not just a history lesson, but rather is a pattern of thought that has remained constant in the world since Balaam. And so the Lord is always reminding us throughout Scripture, even through into the Revelation, is reminding us of this guy Balaam. Not just the supernatural act of a talking donkey, but the essence of who Balaam was and his teachings and his philosophies are prevalent in the world today, and not just the world, but are prevalent in the Messianic community at large. And we should beware Because it is present among us. And it is incumbent upon us, therefore, to understand exactly who is this Balaam. And exactly what is this sin. So that we would see it in our midst. And we would beware. And we would root it out from among our community. Interestingly enough, Balaam was a man who was hired to curse Israel, but he couldn't. I like the way that Rabbi Larry says it. Every time he went to curse them, he would bless them. So Rabbi says, you know, I cur-bless you. (laughs) I cur-bless you. Every time. he, He just simply was restrained from cursing them with his mouth. But if he could not curse Israel with his mouth, he taught Balak how to get Israel to curse themselves. And this is what we find a little bit later. Let's read through this cursing. Really, we're going to start in Numbers 23, verse 27, Balaam's third prophecy. Starting with verse 25, sorry, of Numbers 23. Then Balak said to Balaam, neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. Just shut up. If every time you're trying to curse them, it turns out into a blessing, then don't say anything. 
I would rather have them not blessed than have you try to curse them and turn around and blessing them again because you're heaping blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And let's just start with two layers of blessing instead of allowing it to grow to be even more blessing. Balak said to Balaam, neither curse them nor bless them at all. That's verse 25 of chapter 23. So Balaam answered and said to Balak, did I not tell you, saying, all that the Lord speaks, that I must do. You ask yourself the question then, at least I've asked this question, was Balaam a believer? And the answer is no. Balaam was not a believer. Did you know that you don't have to be a believer to be used by the Lord? You don't have to be a believer to be used by the Lord. The Lord is not hindered in any way from using any of his creation. There's some people who say, you know, the Lord can't use you, man, if you just don't surrender to the Lord. And all the Lord can use you in, 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 in many ways. Case in point, this mulish looking donkey. Was this donkey a believer? I don't think so. And yet he was used by the Lord and did, did miraculous things. He spoke in a miraculous way, of which we've never seen another donkey do until the young Mr. Ed came on the scene in the 1950s. <laughs> Blowing away the preconceptions of many theologians. We've never seen, uh, you know, a horse is a horse, of course, of course. Unless he's a, oh, whatever. <laughs> And there are people who could know the Bible, read the Bible, learn the facts of the gospel, share them with other people, see other people make a saving commitment to the Lord, and yet they themselves not be followers of the Lord. It is possible to be used by God. Now, why is this? Because the Bible says that every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Yeshua, the Messiah, is the Lord. But that does not in itself say, oh, well, then that means that the whole world in the end will be saved. No. Yeshua said, in those last days, many will come to me and they will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? And didn't I do this? And didn't I do this? And what does he say? You're right. You're all saved. Come on in. Nobody's going to hell. That's the great surprise that I have for creation. No, he says what? He says, turn away from me. I never knew you. We see elsewhere, cast out into a lake of fire, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is it possible to be used by the Lord and yet not truly a believer? Absolutely. There is a situation which is going to happen later in the history of Israel. Saul is pursuing David in order to kill him. Earlier in the narrative, Saul had fought a big battle and had won by the grace of God. But there were instructions that the Lord gave to Saul about what to do with those spoils, and he did not follow the Lord's instruction. And he was on his way to build a monument to himself for how great of a warrior that he was when he was met by Samuel. And Samuel asked Saul, why didn't, you, why didn't you do the things that the Lord told you to do? And he gives some excuse, as we can come up with, each of us on our own, as to why we, you know, we, we rationalize not following the Lord. 
And Samuel says, the Lord has rejected you. The Lord has rejected you. And when Samuel is walking away, this is a part of the narrative that a lot of people don't really connect. As Samuel is walking away, Saul reaches out and he rips the edge of his garment. I'm not wearing them now, but it's it's, tzitzit. And he's standing there and he's holding the edge, the hem of, 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 of Samuel's garment. And Samuel turns to him and he says, just as you've ripped the edge of my garment, so the Lord has ripped you from himself. Ripped himself from you. So here he is holding the tzitzit. And in essence, what it communicates is you are the king of Israel, and yet you have not adhered to the commandments of Israel. I mean, that is what the tzitzit represent, the commandments of Israel given by the Lord. Now, when you take that, and then you flash forward just a little bit in history, David, at some distance from Saul, I have cut off the edge of your garment. I could have killed you tonight, but instead I've cut off the edge of your garment. And David, the Bible says, is overwhelmed with grief for what he has done, the disrespect that he has done. Because what does this communicate? You are transgressing against the law of the Lord. And I could have killed you, but I'm not going to disobey the law. I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. Even though I know that I'm the next anointed, you are still the one whom the Lord has on the pitcher's mound. And I could have killed you, but I will not break the Lord's command. He's holding the seat seat of Saul. But when Saul sees it, he doesn't say, oh man, David could have killed me, but he spared my life. What does he see? You know, the last time I saw one of these things ripped off of a garment was when I ripped the one off of Samuel's garment. And that's the one I really full, I think that's the time when Saul for the first time realized David is the one who was anointed. And I'm trying to kill the Lord's anointed, but the Lord's anointed will not kill the Lord's anointed. Do you understand? This is a drama, high drama. Hollywood couldn't come up with stuff this good. It's a reality. So Saul now, he can't go to Samuel and he can't go to the Lord because he's cut off from the Lord. And so where does he go? He goes to Endor, remember? And he consults a witch. And the witch does her witch stuff, you know? Which, 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 which witches do? Which witch? And she sees Samuel. She's conjuring. People say, oh, does that mean that witchcraft is the real deal? No. Does that mean Tonka donkeys are the real deal? No, by a miracle, the Lord allows a charlatan to actually see what she's been claiming that she can do, but hasn't really been able to do, right? We have this place in Riverside where I live, Limpus Palmas, right? Palm readers, the, the medium, supposedly they can consult they can consult the spirits about your, your, your friends and your love life and your dead family members and all this. Don't believe it. It's baloney. But it's there. And some people think that, no, no, they have evil powers that they can actually conjure these. No, they... You might be talking to somebody who you really believe is your dead aunt. But if you're talking to somebody, it's a demon pretending to be your dead aunt. Because there's no such thing. And I think, in my opinion... The reason why she's so completely terrified is that the first time that she looked into the tea leaves and the chicken bones, she actually saw something. 
And she was being used by the Lord in order to communicate to Saul. Was she a believer? No, she's a witch. Did she have a conversion experience? Your people are my people. Your God is my, like Ruth? No. But let's bring Ruth into this for a moment. Earlier, we're talking, we're reading about here in in the scriptures where he says, in Deuteronomy 23, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter into the Lord's assembly. I love the great theologian Forrest Gump. I actually look like I'm dressed like him today. Have you ever, that's ironic, actually. I'm wearing Nikes, even. Stupid is, stupid does. Moab is, as Moab does. God doesn't hate Amorites. He doesn't hate Moabites. He doesn't hate the residents of Jericho. He doesn't hate Canaanites all of whom are in the line of Messiah. Read it in Matthew chapter 1. Rahab, Ruth, Tamar, and depending on which theologian that you talk to, probably Bathsheba, because she was at least married to a Hittite. Hmm. So God's not against foreigners. What is he against? Foreign gods. People who would say, I'm leaving my idolatry. I'm leaving my worldly ways. And your God is my God. And your people are my people. When you leave the foreign gods and you leave the ways of your people, even though you may have been born in Moab, and even though your mom and your dad may have been Moabites, you are no longer a Moabite as defined by what makes Moab, Moab. You are now what? You now identify with the word of the Lord, with the Messiah of the Lord, and the people of the Lord. In all things, I have become what? A new creation. So you could be a Moabite or an Amorite or an any other kind of ite and turn to the Lord and he will receive you as his people. See also the book of Hosea. Formerly not my people, now a people of the Lord. But you could be used by the Lord... And yet that in and of itself does not make you a believer. There's a choice that you have to make, a decision that you have to make. And we do not have anywhere in Scripture that Balaam turned from his sin and said, I'm leaving the old uh, fake prophet for profit business, and now I'm going to become a follower of the Lord and his word. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to get the lowest job that I can get in Israel just to be with his people. We don't see that. So I think we can say with confidence two things. Number one, Balaam and the witch at Endor and some other people who were used by the Lord, the old donkey, probably not believers. Okay, We know that with confidence. And what we also know is is that there's probably people among us who talk a good game. But at the end of the day, they're just confidence men and women. People who are trying to manipulate you for money, trying to manipulate you for certain physical favors. Wolves in sheep's clothing. Yeshua said pretty well, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. Okay? It's possible to be used to the Lord and to not be a believer because he is the Lord of all. And he is not hindered by any sin of any person. And just because you may have been used by the Lord at some point, before I was a believer, I grew up in church. And before I was a believer, I remember sharing the gospel with the guy and a guy praying to receive the Lord. 
And two or three years later, I myself prayed to receive the gospel, which I had shared with somebody else and led to the Lord. Unbelievable. Because the gospel is not hindered. But it's such a shame to do all the outside and all the external and to come in and to learn the dances and to learn the songs and, and to read the scriptures and learn Hebrew and, and to wear a kippah and to all the, it's, it's Why would you do all the outside but not do the inside part? Because it's the inside part that's the saving part. You could live the rest of your life without wearing a tzitzit or a kippah or singing in Hebrew or <laughs> any of these other things. But if you do all the external and you don't have the internal, it's nothing. It's like what Yeshua said of the Purushim and the Sadikim of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You're like whitewashed tombs. You got it all going on on the outside, but on the inside, you're wicked and you're coming in for profit and you're coming in for gain. And you're like those people who were following the disciples around after the resurrection of Yeshua. And they're saying, hey, we want to hang out with you and teach us how you do what you do because you're really influential. We want to learn how to heal like that. We want to learn how to have influence. And they were in for the power and the influence. But they weren't in for the, here's the promise of the Lord that almost nobody claims. In this life, you will have adversity. Lord, you claim that I would have it. Now bring it on. You don't ever hear the wealth and prosperity guys teaching about claiming that. A servant is no greater than his master. They hated me. They're going to hate you too. Yes, Lord. In Yeshua's name, I claim it for myself. They're going to hate. I want to be hated. Hey, when you follow the Lord, you have a joy which passes the peace of this world. And I'm going to tell you right now, we're reading in the narrative that Balaam did not have that joy. He was a for-profit prophet. Verse 25, then Balak said to Balaam, Neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. But Balaam answered and said to Balak, Did I not tell you, saying, All that the Lord speaks, I must do. What is he saying? It is against my will. I do not want to bless these people. I want to curse them. I want to get the big paycheck. But I can't, because he is the Lord, even of the unbeliever. But just because he's your Lord, whether you accept him or not, like gravity, you know, I don't believe in gravity. I just don't believe in laws and absolutes. Okay, well, if I were you, I wouldn't jump off any cliffs because there's certain absolutes that you can't reject. You got to deal with it. Verse 27, then Balak said to Balaam, please come, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. The Bible says that the enemy is like a lion and he's just, you've seen the lions, right? The, the, the lions in the cage. And they're cagey and they're pacing. And the, the kids are sitting there on the grade school trip, you know. They're eating a sandwich in front of the glass. And they're, look at the lion. He's actually moving, you know. You know what that lion is thinking? I got to find a way to get through there because then I get a kid and a sandwich. <laughs> right? That's what the lion is thinking. And that's what the enemy is doing for you. Okay? They, they, got, they got saved. They've come to a saving knowledge of Yeshua. And then they, then they started working on their alcoholism, and I can't get them with alcoholism anymore, but I think I can get them with pornography. I can't get them through overspending, but I think that I can get her on gossip, and we'll start working on her from that perspective and start alienating her from all of her friends, because everybody that she knows, she gossips about, and so eventually it's going to get around to everybody. And once I have her alienated, I'm going to pick her off. Hey, listen, the enemy is trying at all angles, and Balak says to Balaam, well, if you can't curse them from here, maybe you just got the wrong angle. Curse them from here. If you can't curse them in the valley, 
Well, then curse them up on a hill. If I can't get you to turn from your faith when times are hard, maybe I can get you to turn from your faith when times are good. Because quite frankly, most people, especially believers, when times get hard, yeah, you might get a little of this, Lord, what are you doing? But eventually, the, the hard times, they lead you, you know, to repentance and to saying, naked I came into this world and naked I'm going to go out, Lord. I might not have anything, but I am not letting go of my faith. I mean, this is Jacob wrestling with the angel. The type of wrestling is not like we think of as submission wrestling, or else the angel would have been said the one who won. But the Bible says that Jacob overcame. And how did he overcome when he got hit by the hip? He got overcome because it was the kind of wrestling where you won't let go and one person's trying to throw a person off. And the idea is, is that Jacob wouldn't let go. It's not that he beat the angel, because that's not the narrative. The angel definitely beat him in the wrestling match, but he wouldn't let go of the angel. Remember the, remember the story, the dialogue? What does he say? Let go of me. The angel says, let go of me. I won't let go of you until you bless me. And in the same way, the enemy won't let go of the pursuit of you. And sometimes when the times get hard, hopefully we turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I have nothing else, but blessed be the name of the Lord. But here in Orange County, it probably doesn't affect any of you people in this room, but there's actually a disease which is going through. The, C- the, the Center for Disease Control has actually put out a, a recent thing. Uh, it's not the MERS virus. It's called affluenza. Have you ever heard of it? <laughs> affluenza. It's the endless pursuit of more. And you know what? Sometimes the best way to blind a person is to turn the lights off. But sometimes, the cops know this, the best way to blind a person is to shine the light right in their eyes. And sometimes if having nothing won't get you to forsake the Lord, what if having everything and every... You know what? Money doesn't buy happiness, but let me tell you what it does buy. Options. You can defer your unhappiness to another option. But when you don't have any money, do you know what you do? You hang out at the house. (laughs) I don't have any gas to drive anywhere. I don't have any money to go out to eat. And eventually you learn how to play board games and actually talk to the people who live with you. But money keeps you from community. And your friends who are your friends because you have money, those are not your friends. The friends who leave you when the money leaves you, those are just people who were hanging out and they were part of the good times. And they were sort of like codependents with you in the diversion of things that you didn't want to do. Doesn't matter what angle it is, maybe this is the problem. And so Balak says to Balaam, please come and I'll take you to another place, verse 27. Then perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor that overlooks the wasteland. And then Balaam said to Balak, build for me three, uh, sorry, there, seven altars and prepare for me there seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and a ram on every altar. I like the God-themed religion, you know, seven. Let's do stuff that, that, that honors God when it's put in the proper context, but when it's taken out of the proper context, even though you do the things which he has prescribed for you to do, he doesn't bless it. That's why it's important to understand the Bible so that we can understand God's word from its right context. We're not just using the images of God, but not having understanding of the, of the Lord and why he has prescribed certain things. And therefore, your religion is doomed to fail. 
because it's based out of superstition or tradition, but it's not actually based out of the word of the Lord as he has prescribed for it. So now the Lord says, altars, great, altars. God, seven, that's a godly number, seven of them. Rams and goats, we heard he likes that. Throw them up there. And this is the way the world tries to do Christianity, taking all the images of it, but denying the power thereof. And we read that in the end times, this is a thing that we will see. And if you see it in our generation, and we do, then we must be living in the end times. Amen? Now, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek to use sorcery, but he set his face toward the wilderness. I love it. Balaam realizes that it doesn't matter. I can't do witchcraft. It's not going to work. And I can't fight against the Lord. That's not going to work. So I'm just going to set my face toward the wilderness. By the way, this is where Israel was, in the wilderness. And isn't it amazing that all of this was happening and Israel had no idea that on top of the mountain up there, there's two dudes and they're trying to curse us. It reminds me of the fact that Israel as a state exists today. Can you imagine the plans from Hezbollah From Lebanon, Syria, Iran, Jordan, Egypt. And that's just for starters. The ways that they are thinking, even now, even at this moment, to curse Israel. Hey, listen, I've been to Israel. I've spent a lot of time in Israel. Israel's doing a great job cursing itself. It's a very secular nation. Okay? Spirituality is is run amok. But it's Eastern religion. And it's... You know, rabbinic Judaism, which is based solely on, you know, ideas from the Torah, but mostly opinions from the Talmud. And yet the Lord has a promise to keep her. And not only that, but when we read the revelation, there's a promise of a coming revival. And so we're praying towards that and we're working towards that. But to just put it into modern context, don't you believe That even now, as I'm speaking, that somebody is trying to devise a way to curse Israel. and maybe happening in thousands of locations surrounding her even today. Oh, this isn't just a history book. This is history as we're living it. Now, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord, chapter 24, verse 1, to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek sorcery, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam raised his eyes and he saw Israel encamped according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And then he took up this oracle and said, the utterance of Balaam, son of Beor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside not Riverside where I live, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He shall pour water from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. Interesting. Talking about spreading out from this place, we look down and we see them camp. You know, we're reading through numbers and so we know that how the Lord has told Israel to camp. And what do we see at this moment? At this moment, it's not going to last long, so don't blink. 
At this moment, Israel living in obedience to the Lord, doing exactly what he said. And even from an elevated position, you look down and you're like, man, that's impressive. To see a people in obedience. Do you know what? A people in obedience cannot be cursed from without or within. A people in obedience cannot be cursed. Are you a person in obedience? Are you a person who says, you know what I delight in? Seeking the Lord in his word and doing what it says. Because from the valley or from the mountain, from the east, from, the, from any angle, you can't be cursed. I heard Adrian Rogers, pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church years ago say, it's impossible to con an honest man. Because a con man, a confidence man, the way that they gain your confidence is they're going to give you something a little cheaper than you can get it anywhere else. They're going to get it to you a little faster than you can get it from anywhere else. And by doing this and promising this, they're gaining your confidence. And they're trustworthy in little things, but they're only trustworthy so that they can manipulate you into the big catch. I grew up fishing, and we had different lures for different seasons of the year and for different types of, of, of situations that we had to cast into. And so not every lure worked for every occasion where we went fishing. So we had a tackle box with different lures, and we would pick the right one, and the better we were, and basically we were trying to trick the fish. And you know what the ones that work the best are? The ones that you can throw in there, and not the ones that look just like a fish. Because in murky water, a brown lure is almost impossible to see. That's how so many minnows survive. No, no, you want one that's neon, that has shiny things that wiggle around, and they make noise. They announce that they're here. An old big mouth bass is sitting down there in a lily pad. Five years have gone by, nobody's picked me. I just keep getting bigger and bigger. Seven pounds down here, nobody's caught me yet. What is that? And it's neon pink, and I'm hungry, grabs it. And then the moment he grabs it, caught. That's how we catch fish. By giving him something that never existed in nature, that seems better and larger in life. And that's how we gained the confidence of the fish, by giving them something that they couldn't get anywhere else. And finding out what their hunger was, and the season in which their hunger is, and then throwing it right out there. And that's exactly what the enemy is trying to do to you. And that's what a confidence man is trying to do to you. And so if you're honest, you say, you know what? I, that just, that sounds like you might have got that off a truck. Like, like, sounds like you might have a cousin. How does a cousin finally all of a sudden show up with 27 flat screen TVs? Oh, it just has a scratch on the uh, serial number. These are the angles. But there they are sitting down, camped exactly as the Lord said, I want you to camp. Being obedient. And when you're being obedient, it doesn't mean that you're not going to have hard times. And it doesn't mean that the enemy might not come at you from every angle. And it might hurt on some days. But if you're obedient to the Lord and you're seeking after the Lord, you will overcome. Because it's impossible to curse a person who is doing what the Lord has commanded. It doesn't mean that you won't have conflict. The peace, the true shalom, which passes understanding, is not the absence of conflict. Rather, it is the peace in the midst of conflict. But what I'm saying is, if you're seeking after the Lord, the enemy cannot overcome you. You cannot curse a person who is seeking after the Lord and doing what the Lord has prescribed. Are you living your life in victory right now? Or are you living your life in defeat? 
Because you know what the Lord delights in? If you're living your life in defeat, He delights when His children turn to Him. The Bible says that if we would confess our sins to Him, that He is faithful and just to forgive us and what? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's why we're seeking His Word, so that we can live in accordance to His commands, so that when the enemy comes at us and maybe comes at us really hard, we stand unwavered, uncursed, as it were. And Balaam raised his eyes and he saw them encamped in chapter 2, I mean verse 2. He says in verse 5, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He shall pour water from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. Meaning that he's not just going to be the God of Israel in the future. He's the God of anyone who would turn to him and by faith through his grace that they would be saved. Regardless of nationality. His king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. Now Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And in Exodus chapter 17 verses 8 through 15 we have the story of Israel fighting against the Amalekites. And before they went into battle with them, there was some great concern and fear as to whether or not they could defeat them. But this is the situation in which uh, Moses' hands had to, grew heavy and they had to be supported. And the Lord is saying that, the, 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 his king shall be higher than that and shall prevail. Verse 8, and God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox, and he consumes the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and will pierce them with his arrows. Speaking of out of Egypt, we see a couple of times, even in the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament, of this being mentioned. Matthew 2.15, and he stayed there, meaning Egypt. If you know the story of Yeshua's birth, and shortly after his birth, these wise guys show up, the wise men show up, and they talk to Herod. Hey, where's the one born king of the Jews? He's like, king of the Jews, fellas, can you help me out on this? And they recite to him a portion of Micah 5.3, 5.2. Had they actually quoted the whole thing, they would have told them not just where Yeshua was, but they would have told him who he was. Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you were small among the clans of Judah, yet will come forth from you the one to be ruler in Israel. They stopped there, but he says, whose goings forth are from antiquity, from eternity past. Herod asked, where's the Messiah going to be born? They quote half of the scripture, Bethlehem. That's all I need to know. Let's go slaughter some babies down there. But they didn't quote the whole thing. His goings forth are from everlasting, from eternity past. What is he saying? The deity of the Messiah. Not only where will he be born, but who will he be? So then the Lord says to Joseph, take the boy and go to Egypt. And down they went to Egypt for a season until the Lord said, now that guy's gone. He's out of the way. Come back. Don't go to Jerusalem. I know that you know that he's the king. But don't take him to Jerusalem. Take him up to the north. Take him to Nazareth. And so there he went, up to Nazareth. And it says in Matthew 2, 5, and he stayed there, meaning Egypt. This is Joseph and and Mary and and Miriam, as we know, are here in the Hebrew congregation, and Yeshua. And he says, and he stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, the prophet that he's speaking of is Hosea. Strangely enough, the same prophet, not strangely, but, but interestingly enough, 
the same prophet who said where Yeshua would be born and who he would be also prophesied the fact that, that when Herod wanted to kill the babies in, in Bethlehem, that he would go to Egypt and that the Lord would call him out. Hosea 11.1, 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now we understand the history and the context from that situation. But it's not the only time where the Lord said, I'll call him out of Egypt. Speaking perhaps of Yeshua, but speaking definitely of the fact that Moses would someday come and lead his people out of Egypt. No matter where you've been driven to or from, the Lord always seeks to bring you back to right repentance with him. Isn't that good to know? He says, God brings him out of Egypt, verse 8. He has a strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? Consider this from Genesis 49.9. Judah is a young lion. My son, you return from the kill. He crouches. He lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? This was Jacob's prophecy over Judah. Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. What does he say here? He bows down, he lies down as a lion, verse 9, and as a lion who shall rouse him, blessed is he who blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. It's the Abraham blessing. And it's transferred to Messiah. Verse 10. Then Balak's anger was aroused against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. You ever been so mad you just clap your hands? I have. I just, usually with my kids. He struck his hands together. Because, you know, you don't, you, you, sometimes you get so mad. You just, you, you, you don't want to, you want to control it, but then somehow you, it, it just, you're so mad, and so I'll just clap. And, and I've actually had my kids laugh at me. Um, so it's like, I don't know what to do with you people. And then I look up and they're laughing at me. I'm sorry. So, because uh, you do, you know, they say anger assassinates authority. And sometimes, uh, not that there's not a time for anger, but, but sometimes it is kind of goofy, you know, see kid, oh, whatever. So, uh, <laughs> verse 10, then Balak's anger aroused against Balaam and he struck his hands together and Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies and look, you have bountifully blessed them these three times. Now, therefore, flee to your place. I said I would greatly honor you, but in fact, the Lord has kept you back from honor. This is what the world says to anybody who follows the Lord. I was in the music business in Memphis, Tennessee, as a 20-something-odd-year-old person. 21, I got in the music business. I'm 46 now. And within the first two years, I was working directly for a guy named Billy Gibbons. I don't know if you're rock and roll fans, but Billy F. Gibbons is the lead singer for a band called ZZ Top. And so Billy and I are working together. I had a 64 Skylark that I sold him, and then we turned it into a hot rod, and we developed a great friendship. And someday I'll tell you the story about sharing the gospel with him, because it's it's funny and it's tragic at the same time. But, uh, uh, but I remember that I had an opportunity to make a record which glorified the Lord. 
And right at the same time as I was putting the band together, which was to become Big Tent Revival, and maybe you've come up here and you said, why are these Big Tent Revival CDs for sale up at the front? And it's like, oh, well, because that's my band. And uh, I was making this record. Uh, I had an opportunity to make the record, the first record with Big Tent Revival. But I was also given an opportunity to go on the road with ZZ Top. And I remember, not as a member of the band, but as a member of the entourage. And I remember saying, no, you know what, I'm going to stay here and work on this. And two or three people, not Billy, but two or three other people said, you're making the biggest mistake of your life. Do you have any idea how much money you can make and how you can use that to springboard your career and all that? And I said, well, that, that's not the career that I'm looking for. Well, do you, do you realize how small of a piece of the pie that Christian music is? And then when you break that down, how much of a small piece of a pie that Christian rock music is? And you have an opportunity. Go take the opportunity. And then later, if there's time, go write your songs about Jesus. And I said, no, I'm good. I'm going to stay on the track that I'm on. And that track eventually has led me here. Praise the Lord. (laughs) But I know the pressure. And maybe you feel it in business. You say, I don't want to work on Saturday morning because I want to be here and worship the Lord as he is prescribed. Or maybe you go to a church and it's like, I want to go worship the Lord on Sunday morning. Nevertheless, there's people who all the time are trying to look at you and they look at your devotion to the Lord and they say, that's keeping you from blessing. I, the world, was going to bless you greatly, but because you're choosing this whole blessing Israel, which is that they're not down there sending money up to you. And you just have to trust that, you know, the God who can bless from a distance, he can bless you. He can keep the world from cursing you. And by the way, when the world says, I'm going to withhold everything from you. Here's one thing I found about the entertainment business. Anybody who says you're never going to work in this town again does not have the power to do that. It's just intimidation. You just keep seeking the Lord and doing what is right in his eyes and trust in his timing and in his plan. And you have peace in your life. And you have blessing in your life. What blessing? The blessing of knowing that you are walking with the God of all creation. And whatever place that you may be missing out here on this earth, well, this is all going to burn, baby. He's going to prepare a place for us. He says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will truly come back and receive you to myself. Take you back there with me. And that's what we're living in faith in. Not the endless promises of a guy who's... If you're so powerful, why are you hiring me to curse them? Balak's anger arose against Balaam and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies. And look, you have bountifully blessed them these three times. Now, therefore, flee to your place. You should be afraid of me, man. I said I would greatly honor you, but in fact, the Lord has kept you back from honor. So Balaam said to Balak, did I not also speak to your messengers whom you sent to me, saying, if Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord to do good or bad of my own will. What the Lord says that I must speak. And now indeed, I am going to my people. Come, I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the latter days. So he took up his oracle and he said, the utterance of Balaam, son of Beor, And the utterance of the man whose eyes are open, the utterance of him who hears the words of God. I like what Amos 3, 7 said. Indeed, the Lord does nothing, does nothing without revealing the counsel to his servants, the prophets. Revelation 1, 1. The revelation of Yeshua HaMashiach, 
that God gave to him to show his slaves or his servants what must quickly take place. He sent it and signified it through his angel to his servant John. Genesis eighteen seventeen. Then the Lord said, Should I hide what I am going to do from Abram? Abraham? Matthew seven twenty one and 22. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? I think we could put Balaam in that category. Drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name. And here's what I like, a promise to you and me. 1 Corinthians 14, 1. Pursue love, desire spiritual gifts, and above all that you may prophesy. That's what Paul says for us. Hey, man, if you're going to pursue something, you're going to desire something, desire that you would prophesy. Not predicting the future, but that as you seek the Lord, that the Spirit of God would reveal its truth and its worth to you so you can apply it to your life and so that you can articulate it to others who so desperately need the Word of God in their lives. When God does something, He doesn't withhold it from the prophet, but He tells the prophet what to do. And he's not hindered by the righteousness of any prophet. So if you're prophesying, don't think, well, I'm prophesying, so I must be good with the Lord. Hey, you could be a donkey. You could be a Balaam. How about you just seek to know the Lord and not only know his word, but live as according to his word says. It's one thing to know it and to share it. It's another thing to know it and to live it and to share it. And that's who we want to be. Are we preaching here today or what? I'm like having fun. The utterance of him who hears the words of God, who has, knowledge, who has uh, knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with his eyes wide open. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. What is he talking about? He's talking of Yeshua. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. He shall batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. I like what Revelation 1.7 says. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, including those who pierced him. And all the families of the earth will mourn over him. This is certain. In essence, John, the writer of the Revelation, could easily have said, I see him, but what? But not now. And yet the things that I see are certainly happening, which means that they will certainly happen in the time the Lord prescribes. And I love that about prophecy. Matthew 2, 2, he says, they come saying, where is he born, the king of the Jews? That is the wise men, for we saw his star in the east. Well, what do we have here in verse 17? A star shall come out of Jacob. They say, we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Genesis 3.15, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Genesis 49.10, the scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is, comes, and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. And what is Balaam seeing? The star coming out of Jacob and the scepter rising out of Israel. He sees the Messiah looking deep into the future of what is coming. Jeremiah talks about the eventual fall of Moab. 
Jeremiah 48, verses 45 through 47. Those who flee will stand exhausted in Heshbon's shadow because fire has come out from Heshbon and a flame from within Sihon. It will devour Moab's forehead and the skull of the noisemakers. <laughs> the noisemakers, isn't that the world? Woe to you, Moab. The people of Shemash have perished because your sons have been taken captive and your daughters have gone into captivity. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the last days. And this is the Lord's declaration. The judgment on Moab ends here. Verse 18 of today's chapter, and Edom shall be a possession. Seir, also his enemies shall be a possession. While Israel does valiantly out of Jacob, one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of of the city. And then he looked on Amalek and he took up this oracle and he said, Amalek was first among the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. It puts into better context what we hear in Matthew 19:30, but many who are first shall be last and the last first. If we understand this oracle from Balaam which the Lord has given to him, In Numbers 24, verse 20, then we can understand better the context from which Yeshua is speaking when he says these words in the Gospel of Matthew. Also in Matthew 20, 16, so the last will be first and the first last. Once again, let's read it here from Numbers chapter 24, verse 20. And he took up this oracle against Amalek, and he took up this oracle, and he said, Amalek was the first among the nations but he shall be last until he perishes. And then he looked on the Kenites. Who were those? Those were the people who were the descendants of Moses' in-laws who went into the promised land with them. Some of them rightly believed in the Lord and some of them did not. Not all Kenites were those who were of the family directly of Moses' in-laws. So whenever you see Kenites, you have to stop and step back and say, okay, wait a second. Is he talking about the Kenites who believe in the Lord and are following with the Lord? Or is he talking about the Kenites who live in the region who eventually will be destroyed? Once again, Kenite is as Kenite does. And then he looked on the Kenites and he took up this oracle and he said, firm is your dwelling place and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned. Cain Cain shall be burned. How long will Asher, uh, how long until Asher carries you away captive? And then he took up this oracle and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But the ships shall come from coasts of Cyprus, and they shall afflict Asher and afflict Eber. And so shall Amalek until he perishes. So Balaam rose and departed, and he returned to his place. Balak also went his way. Tomorrow we're going to read, not only hear how we see that Balaam cannot curse Israel, but now we're going to read tomorrow about how he could get Israel to curse themselves. And as he says later in Scripture, we've already read it here this morning, that he taught, Balaam taught Balak how to entice the men of Israel with foreign wives with foreign women. Once again, God is not against people of different nationalities. God is against foreign gods which are attached to those cultures. If people will leave those cultures and leave those foreign pagan gods, they're welcome. 
Later, you should read Isaiah 56. It gives a great picture. He says, hey man, no foreigner who converts to the Lord and keeps my Sabbath and comes in. Hey man, I have a place for you on my altar and within my walls. The Lord is not against foreign people, but he is against foreign gods. And he doesn't want anybody coming to him who's not willing to say, I repent. I turn away. I I turn away from all those things. And Lord, I'm seeking you. The mark of a true believer is not their perfection and that we always make all the right decisions all the time. That we never commit a sin ever after we come to the Lord. That's crazy. Yeshua, they said, hey, teach us how to pray. What does he say? One of the things he teaches them is what? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So do Christians sin or do believers in Yeshua sin? Absolutely we do. I'm telling you right now, I'm standing up here and I do. Do I wake up in the morning and I think, okay, how am I going to sin? How am I going to really get the best out of God's grace? Feel like I'm getting a good deal. No. But will I sin? Well, I have the potential, don't I? As do every one of us. The mark of a true believer is not their perfection, but rather is in their direction. And not will we sin. Of course we'll sin. But when we sin, do we get up, confess our sin before the Lord? Not just with crocodile tears and not just words, oh, Lord, forgive me. I'll never do that again. Although you're already planning to do it again. But with the heart that says, Lord, give me the strength to follow you in the way that you have called me to do. Lord, I am committing to follow you. Balaam didn't do that. He was used by the Lord. And what we're going to find in a few chapters is that below the table, He's going to convince Balak, this is how you get these Israelite guys. Don't worry about it. I got it covered. And he's going to get his. In Numbers chapter 31, verses 7 and 8, the Lord says to Moses, wage war against Midian. And let's see who is spared. Unlike the war that they waged against the city of Jerusalem, where Rahab, the foreign prostitute, was saved because of her faith, By grace through faith, she was saved. And so we know that Balaam was not a believer because when the war came to his town, he had not believed by grace through faith. And so therefore, by mercy, the Lord did not give him mercy. Numbers 31, verses 7 and 8. They waged war against Midian as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they killed every male. Along with the others slain by them, they killed the Midianite kings Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, Reba, and the five kings of Midian. The five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, son of Beor, with the sword. So here's the question for the day. Number one, you don't want whatever version it is of being seduced into harlotry. You don't want that in your life. You want to be the one that can't be cursed. And the way to be that person is to be the person whom the Lord has prescribed in his word. That's who you want to be. That's your directive as you leave here today. To do what the Bible says. And to live a life which is honest and upright. To live a life without loopholes. That's your homework. Unless you're here this morning and you've never turned from your sin and turned to the Lord and received the grace which is offered through Yeshua. And then your homework is very simple. Turn from your sin and turn to the Lord. Say, Lord, I believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. 
I believe that he has paid the penalty for my sin because your word says it, and I want to be a person who follows your word. I believe that he's risen from the grave, and he is alive, and he offers to me eternal life free of charge if I would turn from my sin. But I don't want to be a person who lives in the culture of the Messianic community, but myself not be a true believer. And so, Lord, I believe. And now help me with my unbelief. But in as much as I need to know, I turn from my sin and I receive you now. If you say that in your heart and you truly confess it with all of your soul, the Lord says he will hear it and he will forgive you and he will cleanse you. You won't just be a person coming to this messianic community and fitting in among the other sheep, but you'll actually be one who says, Lord, I submit to your And he says, come in. Jewish, come in. Gentile, come in. These are the terms for those who are my sheep. And my sheep hear my voice. Okay, That's who we want to be. The people who hear the voice of the Lord, who seek after the Lord, who have a right saving relationship with him. And we're not fooling ourselves or anybody else by trying to live a duality. Amen? Amen. Stay tuned to Solace Radio.